Thanks so much for joining us today, Highland family. Let me go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer as we dive into our final topic in our series in Proverbs. Father, we are so grateful to uh, open up your word this morning and to hear from your inspired and errant scripture that's been preserved for us so that we can have a right relationship with you, so that we can know how to pursue the Christ-centered life, so that we can better understand what it means to be a child of you. So Father, we just ask that today through our time, you uh, convict us of areas we need to be convicted. You encourage us in the ways that we need to look more like Christ, and ultimately you speak to us through uh, the reading and the teaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout his nine decades of life, Warren Buffett has earned the nickname the Oracle of Omaha. By every estimation, Warren Buffett has been a profoundly successful businessman and investor. Modern day estimates of his personal net worth put it somewhere in the ballpark of $89 billion. That is roughly the gross domestic product of the entire nation of Ethiopia for one year. Everything that he touches turns to gold, which means that a lot of people want to know his secret to success. There's a lot of people that would do about anything to gain a little bit of financial wisdom and knowledge from Warren Buffett. Which brings us to an interesting question. How much money would you be willing to spend to have a three-hour lunch with Warren Buffett where you could ask him any financial and investment questions that you have? Now, believe it or not, that's not a hypothetical question because every year Warren Buffett actually auctions off a three-hour lunch for you plus seven of your friends to the highest bidder. And then he takes the money from that and donates it to one of his favorite charities in San Francisco. And in the most recent lunch, I believe it was in 2019, the lunch auctioned off for 45 million dollars to a 28-year-old named Justin Sun. Now, you know, I'm 27, so apparently I need to be taking notes from Justin because he's only a year older and he dropped $4.5 million on a lunch. And, you know, I am about $4.5 million poorer than him. But apparently he thought that a three-hour lunch with Warren Buffett was worth four and a half million dollars. That's how much he prized his wisdom. Now, the reality is a lot of us would probably enjoy some financial tips from Warren Buffett, but we're not part of the elite few who can afford a four and a half million dollar lunch. But you know, thankfully, we have access to the financial wisdom of someone far wiser, far more successful, far more influential than Warren Buffett. He was a king of Israel. His net worth is in the estimates of over a trillion dollars. He was wildly successful as a king and as a businessman. And more than that, his financial wisdom has been inspiredly recorded in scripture and preserved for us thousands of years later. His name is King Solomon and his wisdom is recorded in the book of Proverbs. And this morning, we're going to look specifically at Solomon's wisdom for how we as Christ followers should handle our money and our finances. But let me just tell you right off the bat that this wisdom from Solomon is going to come into direct uh, conflict with the wisdom we're going to hear from the world. 
This is not wisdom you're going to hear from Forbes magazine or Better Investments, whatever else it is, because the wisdom of the world is going to tell us to pursue a very different path of understanding finances than how God would tell us to steward our finances. So we need to keep that in mind that this is God's approach for how to rightly uh, understand the topics of money and finances. Now, I know what you're thinking. There's a common perception in many American churches that the topic of finances and money are taboo topics to preach on. So why are we talking about this today? Well, first of all, Pastor Jeff assigned this to me, so, you know, there's that. Uh, But second of all, and more importantly, we can't reconcile that misnomer with Scripture. If we're going to be a church that faithfully preaches through books of Scripture and exposits God's Word verse by verse, then we're going to come into contact with the topic of money and finances often. Believe it or not, there are over 2,000 verses in Scripture that relate to money and finances. It's the most talked about topic in Scripture, even outpacing topics like prayer and faith. Which brings us to an interesting question. Why so many verses on one topic? You know, this, this is just my personal answer on this, but I think it's because God rightly knew that this would be a hard area for us to live out our obedience to Christ. The idols of materialism run deep in our hearts, and once they take root, they're hard to supplant. I think of what Jesus said when he laid down the ultimatum in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, hey, you can serve God or you can serve money, but you cannot serve both. And if we're going to take Jesus at face value, which, you know, is usually a good rule of thumb to do, uh, we need to realize that the lordship of Christ extends to every facet of our life, even including our finances. So how do we approach the topic of finances and money as Christ followers in a God-glorifying way? Well, that's what we're going to examine today in the book of Proverbs. Now, we don't have time to look at every proverb that uh, Solomon wrote regarding finances, but we're really going to look at three summary statements that kind of give us the best wisdom he has to offer. And here's the first word of wisdom that King Solomon has for us. As Christ followers, we need to, point number one, choose honoring over hoarding. Early on in the book of Proverbs, Solomon gives a word of encouragement for God-fearing believers to purposefully choose to honor the Lord with their wealth and their finances. Listen to what Solomon writes in Proverbs 3, 9. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of our produce. Notice the first word there. He says honor. And then he says a, a way of honoring the Lord and worshiping the Lord is by bringing an offering of our money, our resources, our possessions, a first fruit offering and giving back to God and his kingdom work and his kingdom purposes. By choosing to honor the Lord through giving an offering of our finances, we're rightly recognizing that everything we have is ultimately a gift from God to begin with. His generosity in our life inspires us in turn to be generous people. Now, you know, contrast that with another approach to finances that Solomon outlines in Proverbs chapter 11. Listen to what he says in verses 24 through 26 about people who hoard their wealth instead of uh, using their wealth in generous ways. 
here's what Solomon writes. He says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer, but another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered, but people curse him who holds back grain. But a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. You know, this is a really interesting section of verses, but before I jump into that, I first want to remind us the genre of scripture we're looking at. So the book of Proverbs falls under the genre of wisdom literature and as right uh, expositors of God's word, we need to always keep in mind the genre of scripture we're looking at because each genre of scripture has different hermeneutical principles that guide us in our interpretation to come to right results for understanding and applying the text. Proverbs are not promises. Instead, Proverbs are generalities. They're general wise sayings that hold true more than 50% of the time. So what Solomon is not saying here is a hard and fast promise that if you give to the Lord, you're always going to get a lot of money in return. And it's kind of a prosperity gospel of you plant financial seeds and you'll always reap a big financial harvest. That's not what Solomon is saying. Instead, Solomon is saying people who are generous with their resources and give back to the Lord oftentimes will not suffer financially for doing that, but instead God looks at that with blessing because of their obedience and love for the Lord. Conversely, he says someone that withholds and hoards their finances oftentimes suffer for that. Not only do they suffer relationally with other people, but it just grows the selfishness and materialism that's already ruling their hearts. So in this context, Solomon is warning us, don't be a hoarder. Instead, honor the Lord with your finances. But that really brings us to an important clarification. What does it mean to be a financial hoarder? Let me first begin by answering that question uh, by telling us what hoarding is not. Uh, Scripturally, It does not mean, uh, being a financial whore does not mean a person who is saving up for their retirement, a person who's wisely saving for the future, a person who's building up a financial portfolio. Being wise with our money and being savers and planning ahead for the future does not mean that you're a hoarder. Instead, biblically, a hoarder is a person who elevates a craving for wealth and possessions over their love for the Lord. A financial hoarder is a person who withholds what they should be gladly and generously giving back to God and his kingdom and his people, but instead they're holding back to pad their own bottom line. It's a person who says, I don't want to give back to the Lord from the first fruits. I want a hundred percent of what I make to be spent only on me. It's a person who cares more about their temporary net worth than investing in eternity. And you know, this principle is really important and one that I think the American church needs to be more aware of because believe it or not, uh, the American church is profoundly financially blessed by God. We live in a time period where Americans compared to the rest of the world and the rest of time are profoundly wealthy. Uh, Believe it or not, if you make over $34,000 a year after taxes, you are in the top 1% of global earners. The, annual, the, the average annual household income across the world for workers is $1,500. Now, I know there might be some of us listening today and thinking, man, I don't make a lot of money. I'm not in that top bracket, but 
compared to the $1,500 that's the worldwide average, we are financially blessed. And one would expect to see that as Americans have been financially blessed, there's going to be an increase in generosity to giving back and giving to charitable causes and giving to the church. But sadly, statistics show that's not the case. I want to share a few of those statistics this morning to paint a picture of what we're seeing across our country. But before I do that, let me just give a quick disclaimer. I personally don't think that these statistics are indicative of our Highland Church family. I think we have a very generous church family and many people who do desire to be generous givers supporting God's kingdom purposes. However, in the same breath, I don't know for sure because at Highland, no pastor, no director, no one on staff other than our accountant knows what any family or any individual gives to Highland. Your giving is between you and the Lord. We don't know that. We never want to be the church that James rebukes in his epistle for. Uh, they were giving the padded front row seats to the big donors and telling the people who weren't giving to kind of sit in the rafters in the back. We, we never want to show partiality in any way. So we, we don't know. So I, I don't know for sure, but I do believe that these statistics probably are not true of Highland. So with that disclaimer in mind, listen to some of these statistics about how Americans are using their wealth when it comes to giving back to the Lord. When surveyed, 17% of Americans claim that they regularly tithe to a church. In actuality, researchers found that only 3%, maybe 4 or 5% actually regularly tithe to a church. There's a big difference between those who say they do and those who actually do. Not only that, the national average for Americans giving back to a local church is actually 2.5% of their annual income. The rate during the Great Depression was 3.3%. So we're almost down a percentage of giving back to the Lord from the Great Depression era giving. On average, Americans who attend a Protestant church each week give $17 a week to the church. The average American spends $21 a week on, wait for it, coffee. And then this last statistic is probably the most troubling. People who make under $20,000 a year are eight times more likely to give charitably than people who make over $75,000 a year. For people who make over $75,000 a year, only 1% tithe. The more you make, the less likely you are to give back to God's kingdom causes. And that's really interesting. I think that final statistic gives us a great bridge into our second point. You'd think that the more someone makes, wouldn't that be the more likely that they would give to God's kingdom causes? But the reality is no. And here's the reason why Solomon would tell us, point number two, if we're going to approach God, finances God's way, we need to realize that more is never enough. Realize that more is never enough. I think many times people think, you know what, if I just made a little bit more, if I get this next raise, if I get this promotion, then I'll get serious about giving to the church, being generous to people who are down on difficult times, giving to missions, doing all these things. But if I just had a little bit more, then I'll get serious about it. But the reality is every time we get a little bit more, the goalposts move and then we say, well, you know, I really need to use the money here instead. So, so next time, then I'll get serious. 
Solomon outlines this really well in Proverbs 23, 4 through 5. He says this, you know, don't, don't, uh, do not toil to acquire wealth, but you have to be discerning enough to desist. He's saying there, he's not saying don't work. Solomon is saying, know when enough is enough and don't be a workaholic who's fixated on wealth and going up to the next financial bracket. He says, for when your eyes are on being wealthy, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and flies away like an eagle toward heaven. Essentially, Solomon is saying when wealth and financial prosperity are the focal point of our life, we're never going to be satisfied. Because every time we get near our goal, it's as if our financial goal sprouts wings and flies a little further away. More is never enough because the goal always keeps moving. And don't we see that in our American culture? We are a discontent culture. We're being trained to always desire the newest, always desire the bigger, always desire the better, and to think that we need those things to be happy. There's always a new car to be leased. There's always a bigger house to purchase. There's always a more luxurious vacation to take. There's always a wardrobe that needs updating. There's always a new Apple device coming out every three days at this point that needs upgrading to. There's always another financial investment opportunity that we can be a participant in. You know, I think this graph that we're about ready to show really summarizes this point well. If you look at this graph, on two sides, I have two different correlating numbers. So from 1940 to the present, the average people per household, so average kind of family size for all Americans, has gone from 3.7 down to 2.6. So the, the average amount of people living in one house is shrinking pretty dramatically over that time. But then, conversely, when you look at the square footage of homes, the average square footage back in 1940 was about 1,200 square feet. The average square footage now is over 2,400 square feet. So houses have doubled in size. Families have shrunk. Homes have doubled in size. That means personal living space is up 200%, which means that I've got a personal bubble that's like triple the size of my great-grandpa's in my house. And the reality is, do I really need that much more space than my great-grandpa did? Or am I just being told by my culture that bigger is always better and I need more? Now, once again, please hear me saying this. I am not saying that it is a sin to have a big house. I'm not saying that it's a sin to have a nice car. I'm not saying it's a sin to go on nice vacations. None of those things are wrong or sinful. In scripture, we see many examples of people with large houses hosting church groups in their home and that being a great outreach. We, we know that there were wealthy people who supported Jesus' itinerant ministry. Being wealthy is not a sin. Solomon is just saying that when wealth is our focal point of our lives and it becomes all about materialism, then we're in trouble because we've displaced God as the highest love and affection in our lives. Solomon is saying, don't get stuck on the American hamster wheel of materialism saying, I always need more. I always need more. I always need more. Instead, we should take seriously what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kind of evil. 
Notice he doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We're seeing here that if we're prioritizing amassing wealth and possessions and fortune in this life over and above investing in kingdom causes, something is misaligned in our spiritual lives. If we keep delaying being generous givers until we have a little bit more, we need to realize that we're never going to be generous givers. We'll always find a reason for why my money's better spent on me than God's purposes and God's kingdom. No matter how much or little we make, no matter how old or young we are, realize that God is asking us to partner in his worldwide ministry and be generous givers to his causes. And that really brings me to a third question. Why is being a generous giver so hard for so many people? Why is materialism such a powerful idol that's taken hold of our culture? Well, you know, this is probably just one answer among many, but I think this is one potential answer. It's because a lot of us have trusted in our finances as our ultimate source of security about our future. In money, we trust for peace and security. And that brings us to our third point. Solomon warns us of something important that we need to remember. Remember, point number three, in God we trust. You know, trust is a buzzword in Christian circles. It comes up in songs a lot. It comes up in sermons often. We use it a lot, but trust can sometimes be in short supply. It gets a lot of ink, but as Americans, we're not always the greatest at trusting in God. We confess with our mouth that we trust in God to be the provider and sustainer of our lives, but then we functionally live as if God is not really trustworthy. And we see evidence of this all the time. It takes place every time we fall into a deep despair when the stock market takes a big hit and has a bad day and we walk around like gloomy Eeyores because really our trust has been in the Dow Jones Industrial Average to provide for our future rather than God. It takes place when we seemingly deify a political figure on either side of the political spectrum because they promise us a healthier GDP, a bigger bank account, and more money for all. It takes place when we go weeks without asking God to give us this day, our daily bread, because we have bought into the narrative that we are the providers and sustainers of our own lives, and we're the ones who provide our daily bread. It happens when a person diligently and desperately seeks the Lord during a financial crisis, but when things are going better, suddenly that devotion to the Lord evaporates. I think of what Proverbs 37 through 9 says. It's a radical prayer. Here's what the prayer says. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. That is a pretty radical prayer. This prayer is saying, Lord, don't give me too little, but don't give me too much. Because if I get too much money and too much possessions, I'm going to forget that I have to rely on you as my provider and sustainer every day. And I never want to get to the place where I forget how radically dependent I am for you, on you. Realize how radical that prayer is. I'm guessing there's not a lot of us have, who have been praying, you know, God, just don't give me that raise at work. Because I'm really afraid that if I get that raise, I'm going to become materialistic and focused on my self-sustaining rather than trusting in Christ. Probably not. 
Instead, we probably prayed more, you know, give me the money, Lord. Show me, show me that raise. Give me more. This is, this is a radical prayer, but notice it's because the author is saying, and God, I trust, and I never want to forget that lesson. And we see a severe warning of what happens when we forget that lesson in Revelation 3. These are Jesus' words to the church of Laodicea, starting in verse 15. He says, I know your works, and you're neither cold nor hot. Would you be that you're either cold or hot? But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We all know that part. That's the part, they're lukewarm. Jesus says, you make me so sick, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. But a lot of us don't know the reason why Jesus said that. It's in the next verses. He says this, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church of Laodicea was in a prosperous culture in a prosperous city. And because of that, they were looking around and saying, man, we really don't need God. We've got this all together by ourselves. We're rich. We've got things going well. And because of that, they had forgot their dramatic dependence on the Lord every single moment. And Jesus looks at them. He says, I'm repulsed by you guys. You've fallen more in love with luxury than serving and worshiping me. And Jesus says, you've forgotten that you're so in love with the gifts that the whole purpose of the gifts are to glorify the the giver. And there's something dramatically wrong in your perspective on how to handle your wealth and your finances. So that's what Jesus is rebuking. He says, no, 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 you got to remember your ultimate trust isn't in your stuff, it's in me. So this morning, Solomon is encouraging us to think what is our ultimate trust in for our peace and our future and our security? Are we trusting in Jesus or the American idol of materialism? Are we putting more trust in Jesus or the stock market? Are we more concerned about building up the kingdom of Jesus or protecting my little cloister of stuff? As we close out our sermon today, I want to get a little practical So far, we've discussed a a theology of finances from Proverbs. But now, I just want to illustrate what wise financial stewardship practically looks like in the life of a Christ follower. I have three quick words of application. Here's the first one. We need to learn to view ourselves as stewards rather than owners. Stewards rather than owners. That idea of stewardship was a concept that was very familiar with the biblical audience. Back in these times, there would be owners... A vast estate. It'd usually be a king. They'd be very wealthy. They'd have lots of assets, big financial portfolios, and they would hire a steward to manage the estate on their behalf. Now, the steward had great flexibility and great power. They could purchase things in the name of the king. They could sell things in the name of the king. They could manage the assets. They had a lot of liberty. But the reality is the steward didn't own anything. Everything that they did, every transaction was in the name of the owner. It was in the name of the king. And they were just a manager of the account. And every decision they made should reflect the values, desires, and intent of the owner. And scripture says we need to realize that is what we are as well. We are stewards of God's possessions and his good gifts. We are not owners. God has given us his good gifts to be used to provide for our families, to, I mean, enjoy things in life, but also to build up his kingdom, to further the gospel, to be generous to those who are in most need, to be grateful, generous givers. Think about it this way. 
Let's say that Pastor Jeff and Betty Ann decide to go on vacation this summer. And they call up uh, Megan and I and ask us to house sit. And we go over there and they give us free range of the fridge. You know, they give us uh, free range of using their house and their Wi-Fi and their cable and everything like that. And right before Jeff leads, he puts down a credit card that's in his name. And he says, Andrew, I'm leaving this credit card. You can use it at your discretion if you need to while we're gone. And let's say that his credit card has a $20,000 limit on it. When I told him that, he kind of laughed a little bit. But, you know, let's just say it's got a $20,000 limit. And as soon as Jeff and Benny Ann get on the plane, they're heading out. I look over to Megan and I say, you know what I'm thinking? Surf and turf tonight. We need some lobster and steak. Uh, to, for, you know, as a reward for house-sitting Jeff's house. And then I look at his wall, I think, man, 32-inch TV, come on, Jeff, you can do better. And we go over to Sam's Club and get that new 80-inch TV for the wall. Then not only that, I think, man, look, he's got the basic cable. What a cheapskate. We got to upgrade him. He doesn't even have NFL Network. So we decide to give Jeff an upgrade for the next year on his cable bill. And then lastly, I think, you know what would really complement his back patio? A hot tub right there in the middle. Let's charge it and get rush delivery. And I max out Jeff's credit card. When he comes back, is he going to be happy with me? Not particularly. Am I still going to be employed? Probably not, right? Because the idea is, yes, he gave me that credit card to use. And the credit card was in his name. And everything I purchased was ultimately supposed to reflect his values and priorities. And Jeff really didn't want me spending $10,000 on that hot tub while he was on vacation. I mismanaged the owner's account. And the reality is if God were to sit down with us today and take a peek at our last year credit card transaction history, how well have we done with using the assets that are ultimately in his name? How well have we been stewarding his gifts or have we been acting more like owners? Here's a second point that we need to keep in mind, a second word of application. Rethink ROI. ROI stands for return on investment. If you're in the investment world at all, everyone knows ROI. That means you want a big return. If you invest money, you want a good payout for having that investment. And in the world's viewpoint, the only ROI that matters is more money. But in God's kingdom, there's a bigger ROI than just finances. Because the reality is we can make investments that have an eternal return and they're far more significant than just making more money here in this life. Now, I know this is dorky and you've probably heard this before, but the reality is true. Uh, You will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You won't. The moment we die, our financial portfolios, our net worth, our assets, they're really meaningless. That's why Jesus says, don't store up treasure for yourself here on earth where moth and dust corrupt and someone can break in and steal, but store up treasure for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor dust can corrupt and no one can take it away. Jesus says, if you store up heaven here on the earth, the minute you die, it doesn't matter. I hate to break it to you this morning, but you don't get to wire your 401k to heaven. It it just doesn't work that way. But you can't store up treasure that lasts for eternity. You can't store up treasure in heaven. So what kind of investments can you make that last for eternity and have an eternal impact? Here's just a few ideas. I mean, one of the ways is by supporting the ministry that takes place here at Highland. Highland is one of the most 
wise stewarding churches I have ever encountered. And not only that, it's one of the most generous churches I've ever encountered. Highland has such a desire for kingdom work to be done all around the world. You probably don't know this, but 25% of everything that comes into Highland goes back out to support other gospel ministries all around the world. Ministries like Bible translation into unreached people groups. Ministries like planting churches among unreached nations. Ministries locally like Hope Pregnancy Life Center or Fellowship of Christian Athletes or Christian Camps or other missionaries and and other organizations around the world. Highland literally has a global footprint when it comes to ministry. And by giving to Highland, you are helping the gospel go forward, not just in Wausau, but to the ends of the earth. Another idea might be taking a coworker out for, or a friend out for a meal and, and paying that and using that as an opportunity to build a connection, to plant spiritual seeds and be an encouragement. Maybe it's reaching out and supporting some local ministries that are helping the people who are most financially impacted during this crisis. Reaching out to places like Bridge Street Mission that are helping people coming out of maybe jail or addiction get back on their feet and pursue a Christ-honoring life and, and have a new understanding of finances. You know, there are so many ways that we can make an eternal Uh, impact to the way that we use the resources God has given us. And that really brings me to one final one that's near and dear to my heart. This is my third application point. Uh, Become a financial partner for a long-term missionary. There's so many missionaries who want to be on the field translating the Bible, planting churches, reaching the unreached with the gospel of Christ, but they can't get there till they reach 100% of their finances. And right now it's harder than ever for missionaries to raise support partners. So I'm challenging us to do something called the Starbucks substitute. Okay, remember how I talked about earlier the average American gives $21 a week to coffee chains? What if we substitute that, which comes out to $1,100 a year, instead of buying overpriced macchiatos, we support a missionary and help them reach an unreached people group to the ends of the earth. If you want to be a part of that, you can reach out to me. I'm the missions pastor. I'd love to connect you with the list of missionaries who are raising support. So the essence of Solomon's financial advice today is don't fall into the trap of materialism that he did early on in his life. He looked back at the end of his life and he said, man, I would do things differently if I could. And he said, here are my general ideas. Choose honoring over hoarding. Realize that more is never enough. And remember that in God we trust. Let's pray. Father, you have so blessed us in every way imaginable. You have blessed us relationally, spiritually, but as Americans, you've also blessed us financially. And Father, we want to be wise stewards who see not uh, see the things that we have not as our stuff, but ultimately as your resources that we can use to make a lasting eternal impact for Jesus, the gospel, and your kingdom. So show us how to apply this to our lives today. Help us to get excited about partnering with the ministry that you are doing across the world and to see this as an opportunity to store up treasure in heaven where nothing can corrupt or take it away. And Father, we are so grateful for the many ways you are such a blessing to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. Have a great rest of your week.